Welcome to the Good Bad Mad podcast, a show that's here to share the ins and outs of creative careers, connecting the aspirational with the experienced, with your host, me, Meg Ellis. My guest for this episode is James Neist. He's a cinematographer known for his horror work, including The Haunting of Bly Manor and Annabelle from The Conjuring series, which grossed over 250 million worldwide. We're here to talk to him about what goes into a cinematographer's role, as well as his transition from celluloid to digital over the years. Hope you enjoy it. James, hi. Hi. Goodness. Are you working Hope on a TV series at the moment? I am, yeah, a new uh, Netflix series. Very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> they seem to be filming a lot up in Vancouver. It's like the new Hollywood. There's a lot of reasons. The exchange rate is really um, beneficial for production. And then COVID numbers have been pretty low. And there's some tax incentives as well that yeah. however much they spend, they get a rebate. So second home for you for now. Yeah, it has been a lot. I've been up here, um, you know, the majority of the last two years, really. Mm. Which um, normally it's great because Los Angeles is only like a two and a half hour flight. So I bounce back and forth. But with COVID, like every time I go back to the States, and I have to quarantine for two weeks here. And so I've done it three times since July. Oh, goodness. Thank you so, so much for agreeing to, to chat no, with us today. I'm excited. Yeah, so our, our whole mission really is to uncover the ins and outs of roles that are kind of less known to the general populace. So mm -hmm. people tend to know what a director is and people tend to, well, they know what actors do. But anything beyond that, people never quite realize what goes into the full role. They can kind of guess, they can go, oh, cinematographer, something to do with a camera. <laughs> and then okay. that's it, you know, but we know the role is so much more extensive than that. It's, it's a really multifaceted role that you guys do. So we just want to try and learn a little bit more about it from the horse's mouth, really. Sure. No, I think it's fun. I talk to people all the time and, and um, I'm always explaining, you know, certain job requirements and just the lifestyle, really. It's a huge commitment. And I'm often surprised when people are like, oh, you have to work all night. I'm like, yeah, when you watch a movie or you watch TV and it's nighttime, it's because we shot at night for the most part, you know. And they're like, oh, Mind's wow. blown. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, wow, I never thought about that. Yeah, exactly. So I guess to start off in, in the simplest of terms, how would you describe what you do? In the simplest terms, what I do is I help the director or the producing team bring the written word on the scripts to life visually on the screen. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're working in a completely visual language. Well, I used to think that, but I've come to learn there's a lot more clerical responsibilities now that um, than I'd ever imagined. And it's growing more and more that way because um, organization is such a huge element and planning is such a huge element and mm -hmm. information sharing is a really important element. So there's a lot more office work than, and especially in narrative work, you know, um, we, we spend a lot of time planning. Um, yeah. I always use the analogy that we design our puzzle pieces in the office, if you will. And then on set, we're just manufacturing what we've already designed in terms mm -hmm. of where the shots and the way the camera goes and the look and the film language and that kind of thing. So uh, it's increasingly become more and more um, 
clerical and less visual. Mm. Oftentimes I do better in a, you know, on set with cameras and lights and um, running around as opposed to sitting in an office. And I, um, that's been a big learning experience for me over the last, you know, several years. And what, what do you think has pushed that change? Is it just tight schedules and tight finance budgets? Um, I think maybe technology has where um, when I was first starting and younger, like we would write things out and have discussions and stuff like that. And especially now with COVID where we're not having team meetings as much and we're having more video conferencing and sharing of ideas and schedules and stuff like that. A lot of that gets communicated through, you know, PowerPoints and presentations that, that um, require office work really. Mm. So, so, when do you come into the process? Usually, um, it depends if I'm hired early on or like on a TV show, for example, uh, there's usually one to three DPs that are alternating as the episode. So um, like for this show, for instance, that I'm doing now, um, I'm the lead DP. So I come in a lot earlier and we kind of talk about and design the look of the show. Mm-hmm. And then um, as we're shooting, there'll be another um, person that comes in and they'll just sort of pick up what we've designed and and kind of follow the lead um, same with on a movie you'll have a lot of lead time to discuss and plan and test um, and look at things it kind of depends on the budget because mm. it's about how much money they have allocated to pay you for that prep time and then there's there's been projects where you know like commercials I'll get hired and then the next day I'm scouting and meeting the director and then the following day we shoot so it kind of depends on on the um, subject matter and how involved it is and how what the budget allows for prep. So say with the TV series, why is there multiple DOPs? Is that simply to share the workload? Yeah, and because usually they have multiple directors. So while I'm shooting, um, the another DP will be prepping with the next batch of directors that are incoming. I've done shows where there's only one DP. And what happens is, it, the the incoming directors suffer a little bit because they don't have um, you know contemporary to plan with and discuss shots with and figure out the logistics of things with. So I did a show last year like that, and um, it just puts a little bit more strain on the system uh, and on the directors and the DP. Uh, I ended up giving up my weekends and prepping with them um, as they came in. But sometimes you're so ingrained and, and excited by the project that. You know, it's sort of what you do. So it's like, uh, yeah. is it, is it is it quite tricky though to pick up on another's work or another's style, or is it quite fluid that transition? It's it can be both. You know, I always think it's important to to bring your, a little bit of your own style, your own perspective to to some of it. So, um, and that can be really fun because each person can be a little bit different. But there's a continuity aspect to it that has should be maintained. It, it's it's usually not too hard. The problem where you can run into is when you might have phys- philosophical differences in how to do something, but there's a little bit of wiggle room, you know, and, and it's funny about in our industry, there's really not a whole lot of right or wrong answers. It's very subjective. There's room for people to interject their own creative ideas, but there's also an underlying mandate to maintain the continuity. The show can't look different from one episode to another episode, really. Yeah. So Unless when, it dictates that. Like this show I'm working on now, every episode is going to have an element that's completely different. It's a completely different story, which is fun because there's a lot of variety then. Yeah. You really get to play around. Yeah. Does that mean 
cameras are changing, colors are changing, everything. Yeah, for instance, on this project, I'll be using different lenses, which, you know, add a slight bit of variation to the look. Um, and we try to pick lenses that lend themselves to supporting those, uh, those ideas. Sometimes different lighting, like different colors, for sure. Um, and then sometimes a lot of times it's different periods. So there's different wardrobe, different set design, different props that all match whatever the storyline dictates. But, but usually passing the handle from DP to DP, it would, those things would stay the same. Like lenses would stay the same, colors would stay the same. Anything yeah, else? For the most part. Well, there's something that we talk a lot about. It's called like film language or the language of a camera if it's handheld and has a lot of energy or if it's mm -hmm. really static. So those little um, nuances should definitely pass through from, from DP to DP and stay consistent throughout the, throughout the series. So you get your brief, you get the script. What, what's your next move? Uh, to read it and digest it and then start um, discussing it with the, with the director and usually a creative producer is involved as well. For me, I, I try to get a sense of what the budget is so that you can tailor the approach to sort of fit that that paradigm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I can you know, we can come up with grand ideas, but if the budget doesn't support it, then it's sort of a waste of time. And then it's just to have discussions with the director. Like, you know, a lot of people look at other projects for influence, whether to say, let's go in this direction or let's definitely not go in this direction. So we use a lot of other projects, other artwork, other still photographs, just as talking points to start mm -hmm. fine tuning, you know, the vision. If there's a lot of prep time, we'll watch stuff together. That doesn't seem to be happening very much in the COVID mm -hmm. world. But, you know, I've done projects where we pretty much, you know, every day we allocate two hours of watching other projects together, whether it be TV or commercial or, or even go to the museum and look at artwork. And um, what, what kind of things are you looking for when, when you're watching those other things? Like I said, um, either things that really you gravitate towards or elements that you want to employ and take with you and, and or things that you want to stay away from. We're looking at framing, camera language in terms of camera movements. We're looking at uh, color palettes, pacing sometimes a lot too, like how the edits are paced. So you tie in the camera work to help support the editorial approach. Mm. You know, it's like, okay, we want to, every shot wants to be moving and kind of edited that way so there's sort of a ballet or it's like we want to be really energetic and and we just look at elements from other projects and 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 use them as reference points does that mean you're a nightmare to go to the cinema with <laughs> i can be absolutely or or watch a show with because i'll either pick it apart um but you know I'm, I'm a consumer as well like i like to detach and escape and and watch things for the pure uh, entertainment value and a lot of times now I just try to enjoy that part. And then later I'll think about it and go back and, and look at specific scenes or, or things that may either have stuck with me or struck a chord or, and then you kind of build a, a library in your head of references. And it's funny because it's, it sometimes can be a point of, of uh, insecurity when people, you know, cite other films and different shots and different filmmakers and, and of course, some of them come, come to mind right away and other ones are a little bit harder to remember or find. And so we end up looking back and um, it's like any other industry, like I can imagine you know, mm -hmm. chefs talking about other famous restaurants and I can imagine musicians talking about other pieces of music. Yeah, you're learning uh, from, the, from the previous work. Yeah, absolutely. Is, is that how you've kind of learned the most about what you do? 
that trial and error. I was formally trained as a photographer, cinematographer. Things have changed a bit with the digital era. It used to be, you know, film. So there was a lot of chemistry and a lot of science involved. Mm. Um, there's still a little bit of color science and, and digital science now, but it's not nearly as, um, well, if you ask me, not nearly as romantic. I miss the alchemy of film. You know, there was a little bit of uh, mystery and all that. And, and now everybody is pretty versed. I mean, there's kids doing green screen comps on their cell phones. And um, before maybe the DP, maybe his lighting director, maybe the director had an idea how the, the aesthetics would come together on a project. But now I, I tease that even craft service is, is a department that um, provides food and refreshments on set. Like they'll come by, hey, shrimp, it looks a little blue, you guys. Like everybody has something to say because there's monitors everywhere and everybody can see what's going on. And when I first started and for a number of years, the only way you really got to see it was to actually be invited to look through the camera. Mm. which is a funny thing because it, it would put people on the spot. And in the old days, you had to actually push against the viewfinder to open it to see. And you yeah. could tell people were timid and they just kind of put their eye there and they go, oh, yeah, it's great. Oh, yeah. But they <laughs> never actually pushed hard enough to, to open the viewfinder to see it. And it was, it was always kind of funny. Was that, that transition from film to digital like a, a joyous one or was it a bit intimidating? For me, I was really, it was, it was, it was, I was really, uh, I drug my feet a lot and I was really not into it. Um, again, because I had been kind of, you know, trained and I spent a lot of time processing my own film and I went to, you know, photography school and we did a lot of science with densities of film stocks and layers of emulsions and all that kind of stuff. So, mm -hmm. and the other thing is, is digital is almost completely opposite from traditional celluloid film. In celluloid film, you expose for the darkest part of your scene, and then you print it for the lightest part of your scene. In digital, you expose for the lightest part of your scene because once something's too bright, then it loses all detail. So it's it's actually completely opposite. And it was a little bit hard to stay to be intuitive for digital, mm -hmm. you know. And and but now after years and years of it, I do miss film quite a bit. There is a little bit of a resurgence now. People are trying more and more to shoot film because. One of the things that's happened is that there's only a few really good professional digital cameras mm -hmm. and there's a there's a latitude of being able to change the look but for the most part things kind of look all the same that's why lensing has become really popular because that's really where you introduce some differences and some character and, and stuff like that so people are always clamoring nowadays to use older lenses because they marry well with the digital sensor i know it's all kind of technical they marry no, well it's good to learn. <laughs> the digital sensor could be really sharp and crisp and, and slightly unforgiving. So now we're marrying them with some older glass so that it kind of, for lack of a better word, dumbs it down a little bit, gives it a little bit more of a, a organic, natural feel, takes that digital. There is something a bit harsh about super ultra HD, all of that. It's just like, ooh, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's not very forgiving either, especially for like people's faces and the detail in their faces and things like that so yeah I, uh, I remember reading once about the, the original Star Trek series they thought it was likewise too unforgiving on some of the women so they used to put a pair of tights over yeah. the lens to kind of blur it a little bit we still do uh it's just called rear netting and basically it diffuses the the image and they've been doing that for years through through you know the golden era of Hollywood with um, filtration glass filters. I always tease we have these 
you know, the engineers build these amazing lenses that are super optically pure and all that. And then we just put a bunch of stuff in front of it. <laughs> yeah. Do <laughs> the actors to... get insulted when you bring them out? Sometimes we try to do it quietly. Yes. And then there's other actors and, and um, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but maybe slightly aging uh, stars and, and women who, who are very aware of this, not only the um, filtration, but lighting. And they're very cognizant as to how you capture their images and, and they're aware of the process. So you'll, you'll find, especially when they um, have some notoriety, they have no problem demanding that they're lit a certain way or that they use a certain filtration or certain lenses. That's why a lot of times some of these bigger actors or stars will actually make relationships with DPs and they'll request specific DPs on projects that they do because oh they goodness. trust them that they're going to always do the best that they can to make them, you know, look complimentary. Yeah. What if they need to look horrible for a scene? I struggle with that. I somehow find myself doing a lot of like horror and, and, and thrillers and stuff like that. And um, it's hard because every thread of my being wants to make things beautiful. So it's mm. hard to let people go and look, you know, maybe they're sick or, or whatever. So it's really, really hard because it's counterintuitive for me. But since, since you bring it up, you are, you are known for a lot of horror work, Annabelle and Haunting of Blythe Manor last year. That was a huge lockdown hit here in London. Yeah, um, amazing. Is there some kind of equation to making something look like a horror movie or a TV series? Is there certain things you've got to hit? Well, I think there used to be now, but I think that genre, as, as everybody refers it to, uh, refers to it as, um, has been really broadened. Um, and I think that it always was. If you look at things um, that you wouldn't consider as horror, that really is like maybe Cape Fear, or I mean, there's a lot of films now. I think you could classify as um, horror films that are thrillers or scary or whatever. And I think that that category has broadened so much now. Um, but one of the things that <laughs> This is fun. You know, it, it was early on that a lot of those had a little bit lower budgets. So you kind of had to um, work within the constraints of the budget. And that's a little bit of a, I don't want to say skill set, but it, it's, you know, you kind of have to be able to get the most bang for your buck and figure out how to do that. And so that was something that I could be kind of scrappy and make things out of nothing. You know, I often tease that I pine for the days where you just throw money and stuff. Yeah. And then there's this there's a sensibility about about making things kind of dark and scary and in terms and also with the lighting, but also with the framing in terms of leaving space for people to worry about what might be around the corner or so it's really about I think making things feel moody to a degree. Um, you kind of get pigeon pigeonholed into that, and mm. I gravitate towards darker photography. Now that's kind of changing across the board because I think people in general have gotten more sophisticated in their tastes, the viewing audience has. Mm -hmm. So you'll see other projects that aren't horrible that have a really dark sensibilities. Like, um, I mean, just even TV shows like Ozark's kind of like that. Euphoria was really, was really kind of yeah. dark. Like that. Um, and I think it's just people's aesthetic are changing. And I also think that with digital, the, the viewing devices have a much broader range of um, contrast that they can um, emulate, you know, like there's, it's not so, so like black and white, if you will. Yeah. So with, with that kind of push towards darker atmospheres, as you say, say if you're working on something that, that needs that 
dark moodiness, whether it be a horror, where it be something else. Are you very aware of the fact that some people will be watching this on a cinema screen and some people could be watching it on like on their phones? Yeah, it's kind of a huge issue. Uh, more and more lately with streaming, um, one of the biggest components of that is compression. So a lot of times if it's heavily compressed, uh, you'll see the blacks kind of crawl and get blocked up. So for the layman, what's compression? <laughs> So compression is where they take the video signal and they they squeeze it down in terms of content so that they can actually um, transfer it or, or, or broadcast it, mm -hmm. stream it through um, through whatever the internet, whether it's wireless or if it's... Um, and so they have to compress that signal. It's just too large of files to, to actually, you know, transfer. And each streaming platform has its own algorithm for compression, whether it be Netflix or Hulu or Amazon. Okay. So that's something that literally changes daily in terms of how these video engineers are, are working with their algorithms and, and that can be an issue. And, and that's, and also when we finish a project, it used to be that we would finish for a th movie theater, let's say, and that's the optimal viewing environment. Now we don't know. And I, and I actually tease about that. I was like, well, how's the person that's watching this on the bus going to handle the, you know, the, the footage. Mm. So it's, it's a little bit of a, you know, it's a huge span between the two viewing yeah. environments. So, so it's like, what do you do? Like, I think you, my take on it is you have to be slightly cognizant of people watching it in less than an ideal environment. But really, I think you need to gear the image towards the, um, the best viewing situation. And I think that people who aren't willing to watch something in the, you know, on a regular television or in a movie theater, they're gonna suffer a little bit. <laughs> I would rather something look really good on, let's say, a, a, a decent television set than worrying about the person watching on their iPad, mm. you know, when they're on the subway or whatever. But say the TV series you're working on now, it's Netflix, right? Does that mean you specifically have to cater mm -hmm. to their bandwidth? Ideally, um, we we do that and and um, not so much in the shooting but more in the post processing in the in the okay. color grading we'll have more of a consideration of of how what their platform is like mm -hmm. and there's little techniques like now we're adding grain a little bit so what happens is if something's really black the computer just says oh it's black forget about all that information we're going to concentrate on the lighter tones if you add a little bit of grain that means the background's slightly changing so that forces the algorithm to pay more attention to those color spaces and contrast spaces. So it doesn't tend to just discard it as a as one tone. It's working to sort of um, replicate that signal. Interesting. Who knew? Green. Yeah, <laughs> little, little tricks. And, and we're, you know, we're, we're always, I think as an industry, we're constantly trying to solve that problem. And it's a compromise all the way around. So what makes you choose to use one camera over another? Because like you say, they're almost quite similar nowadays and the technology levels are just so high. Yeah, there's a few elements at play. Some can be where you think your final output is, like if it's IMAX or, or something like that, um, then you're going to need a lot higher resolution. Certain streaming platforms like Netflix has a resolution mandate where you have to shoot a certain resolution. Um, so that's going to dictate the cameras that you that you can use. Mm -hmm. Now with all the different lenses, certain lenses only have a, a cover the sensor in a certain way. So um, the size of the sensor matters in terms of marrying them with lenses and then make sure they're compatible. 
Mm. Frame rate is, is something that each camera is different about. If you have a lot of slow motion work in your project, then you're going to use a certain camera. Then there's the, the, more, the less tangible aesthetics that are more subjective, like skin tone, uh, how certain things get represented by that digital processing. Um, in the old days with film, it was more about, and then size too, like, oh, hey, we have a lot of car work, so we want to pick a camera that's a little bit smaller. And, and also like what your camera support system is, like we're going to do a lot of stuff on gimbals, so we need something a little bit lighter that's really well balanced. Um, as opposed to like, well, everything's going to be on a dolly so we can use a bigger camera that's heavier and yeah. less nimble. So there's a lot of little tiny elements that come into that decision-making process. And is it just a rule that you use one camera per shoot or can you use multiple different ones? You can use multiple different ones. It depends if, if it's okay for scenes to look different, you know, back to back. If you're trying to maintain a, a look throughout the whole project, then you want to pretty much stay with the same camera. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we'll use stuff that's a little bit less uh, advanced, but it's smaller and maybe less expensive. Like it's a crash camera. If it gets if it gets run over by the car and the stunt, then it's not a huge financial loss, which, which has happened many, many, many times. Even in the film days, we had crash cameras that were really simple and, you know, and we used a little bit older, less expensive lenses, just anticipating that there was a potential for loss there. Sacrifice for the, for the sake of art. Yes, yes. And there's been, you know, as digital has kind of progressed, we, you know, for a long time, we were using DSLRs as crash cameras, GoPros, and a lot of that technology has gotten better and better and better. So it's still pretty viable solution for certain situations. But ideally, that's not your main camera. And again, it's driven quite a bit by budget. Have you always loved photography and cameras since you were like a tiny little baby? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I was really into like nature documentaries and Jacques Cousteau and mm -hmm. underwater stuff. And uh, and I that's kind of how I got into filmmaking. My dad was encouraging me to go to business school and I was like, no way, I'm not, I don't want to do that. So I actually went and studied photography just a little bit later. I think I was in my mid-20s when I started. And I went to study underwater photography at a at a kind of a famous photography school in, in Santa Barbara, California called Brooks Institute. And when I was while I was there, I learned a lot about lighting and I kind of fell in love with this idea of painting with light. It just blew my mind and I was I just immediately gravitated towards it and found it really, really interesting. And you know, at the time it it allowed me to not have a regular job and you know. As fun as it is, we, we get to be, you know, I've been all over the world. We have no two days are the same. We have different locations. The variety is really attractive. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of why I was teasing early on about like, and now I find myself in the office a lot. I'm like, what happened here? I'd rather be out, you know, on the beach someplace or in the mountains someplace or in the city. And it's been great because even in cities that I'm familiar with, we find ourselves in places I didn't even know existed. You know, mm -hmm. even in Los Angeles, like I didn't know this was here. Or, um, so it's pretty cool in that regard. Do you find yourself filming in studios quite a lot nowadays instead? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a mix, um, especially now with COVID because of, you know, the constraints of being in public and being exposed to other people. Yeah. We're doing a lot more on stage and, and building stuff. It gives you a lot more control too in terms of noise and time of day and that kind of stuff. But we still shoot a lot on location. And I think that it's it's kind of a balanced approach you know, where you use these exterior locations to ground the audience to where you are, but then you can go inside a room that you built on stage and you can make a day or night at any time and you don't have buses going by or airplanes as much. <laughs> it does still happen. 
Is, um, is there a very big difference between shooting exteriors and interiors? In terms yeah, of not so much in terms of the specific camera, but in terms of exposure and lighting and filtration and those kind of things. Yeah. And also you just don't have as much control either. You're kind of relegated to the time of day, the weather, any other kind of surroundings, whether it's, you know, a mass transit area or any number of environmental factors that you can't control. And so that's a lot of times I think force people to go on stage so they can really be in control 24 seven of their environment. So is it much more stressful doing exteriors? It can be a lot of times, uh, you know, you're, you're relegated by the sun. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, I can't tell you how many times we've shot, you know, night scenes in the summer when, when night's really short and you run out at night and yeah. the sun's coming up and you're not finished yet. And so that's a big panic. And then conversely, it seems like we're always doing, you know, day stuff in the winter when it gets dark at four o'clock. It's a funny thing. Uh, it's, and I call it, most people call it magic hour at sunset. I call it tragic hour. Yeah. Cause it's like, you know, all right, the clock's here. We just got to start flying, making, getting things done. And so you have to plan really well. That's what a lot of this planning stuff comes into play. So to talk about that planning a little bit more, you've had your conversations with the director, with the creative producer, all of that. When it comes to the day to shoot those scenes, you put together a shot list, right? Yep. Is, is there, well, I guess for the basics, can you tell us what a shot list is? Yeah, um, a shot list is basically just um, a list of specific camera angles and um, action from the actors and how you're going to move the camera accordingly. And we make a list of the of the shots that we want. Usually it's a little bit of a dream. And then we have to prioritize what's the most important ones and do those first or at least put the most effort into those. And then we can change the order based on how things are going. And, and a lot of times logistically, it's like, okay, we're looking this way. So let's do all of our shots looking one way so that we're not going this shot and then this shot because inevitably everything's got to move, you know, mm -hmm. you can't. So we try to be efficient in the logistics of it in terms of like, you know, doing all your shots facing this actor this way and then do all your shots. And it's a little bit hard sometimes on the actors because they have to bounce around sometimes mm -hmm. or you just run the scene from top to bottom every time. Yeah, you do feel quite bad for them having to do it the same. <laughs> I guess that's their job, really, isn't it? So are there some standards which you would see on every single shot list? Yeah, for the most part. It's funny because I'm always motivated to break away from the standards. But inevitably in storytelling, there's there's just certain beats that you, you have to do, you know, establishing wide shot and then, you know, cover the actors. And you'll see filmmakers that are trying to push those boundaries and do stuff outside of the box because I think it can become a little repetitive, especially in, like, episodic work and TV work where you traditionally have more coverage like okay you have your wide shot of the two people talking and then you have the profile of two people talking and then you have their close-up and their close-up where in a film that can have a little bit more um creative expression you know like oh the camera comes down from the sky over the dialogue and it sees the one person and it wraps around to the other person and that's your mm -hmm. shot so there are some standards especially in tv and episodic stuff but i think as a whole we're all trying to get away from those to some degree mm -hmm. What, what styles do you find yourself drawn to? Say if someone gave you carte blanche, like what would you go for? I, I love moving the camera. I think it's it's challenging because you're seeing a lot of the real estate. So um, placing the lighting in the right place, making sure the set dressing and the and whatever location you're at is, is handled properly um, because you're seeing a lot of it. Mm -hmm. um, so I quite like to do that. Plus I think audiences are sophisticated now and they're also we're so used to a lot of visual stimuli that 
just a static shot isn't as interesting for people. And I think that they may, um, lo may lose their attention to some degree, um, especially the younger audience. And then you can kind of reserve that slow static shot for when you really need to bring things down and use it in terms of pacing the, the, the edit. Yeah. So I guess this all comes back to the planning, doesn't it? It's like you're, you're thinking, oh, I want to have this style for most of the film, but it needs to lead to this apex of really still, quiet moment, and then you can go back to moving exactly. and that kind of thing. Exactly, and that's the part where you're looking at other films and you're kind of analyzing how the feelings that are conveyed through that camera language, um, and if you want to either go in that direction or you want to steal from it, like pay a little homage to it or, or mm -hmm. use it, like, you know, we're always kind of picking and choosing little elements from stuff in the past that we want to employ in our projects. Mm. As an established DP in, in today's kind of film capital, really, what do you think it's like <laughs> for someone trying to enter that role? Like, I'm assuming you see newbies coming, trying every now and then. Yeah, I mean, it's changed a lot, again, with the advent of the digital um, cameras. Um, it's not nearly, the barrier to entry is a lot less, and you can do a lot of amazing stuff on your cell phone. I mean, nowadays, there's a lot of really cool apps. The resolution of them is pretty good. They're, now a lot of them have these you know, amazing lenses. Um, so it's a little bit easier to exercise those muscles. When I was coming up, I had to actually get film, get a film camera, shoot it, process it, transfer it now um, a lot of that whole process has been streamlined and, and it's more accessible than ever to to anybody even a, a basic laptop is a really powerful editing tool and you can do a lot of really simple things like kids these days can practice their their ideas and and discover maybe their style by shooting stuff on their iphone and editing on imovie or or whatever android platform there is I'm not yeah. <laughs> But no, it's true. I mean, there is so much more accessibility nowadays, but I think that can also mean a bit of overcrowding, you know? Absolutely. I mean, it's really, and you know, now people get hired by their Instagram page. I was going like, to say, is, is that what people are looking at? Is that what producers are starting to look at? To some degree, yeah. It definitely comes into play. And, you know, I'm generationally, I'm a little bit on that bubble. So it's been, I'm still struggling with Spend, mostly it's about spending time curating that kind of thing, you know, and, and also I think there's a little bit of modesty too. It's like, nobody cares what I'm yeah. you know, doing. And like, but there's people out there who have really blown their careers up in a good way through social media platforms. Cause that's really good exposure. It used to be that you would get a submission, you'd send somebody a tape or a DVD mm -hmm. or they go through your agent. Now people just look you up online and, can kind of vet you through your social media platform stuff, your IMDb page, mm. um, all these different things. And, and it comes down to perspective or perception. I mean, it comes down to perception, like how you're perceived. And I know a lot of people that either get work or lose work from their social media platforms. It's well, pretty it's, crazy. it's tricky, isn't it? It's, it's a visual media, isn't it? To support a visual career, but at the same time, it, if you don't abide to it, I guess I can see how that would break it. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting time. And, you know, another um, thing that's happening is, you know, all these diversity interests and in, in, in trying to open up the industry to um, all walks of life. So, it's, again, it's just made it a little bit bigger pool of, of um, competition, really. And there's a lot of politics involved that I'm learning. And that's 
that's that's a lesson. That's a life lesson is learning to navigate the politics and you know who's who's really my boss here. Yeah, you know, sometimes that's something I've learned a couple of times. You think it's the director, but oftentimes it's not. And um, it could be like an executive producer, or or it could be a, an investor that's investing in the project. There's a lot of politics to navigate, but I think that's true in all walks of life for sure. And and I don't think that's something that as a visual artist, you think about, you know, you think solely about the, the images um, as you're developing your, your style or, or your perspective on the industry. And those are lessons that ultimately you learn through experience. It's tricky though, because I mean, film is such a collaborative process, right? Like the job specifications blur very easily between director DOP, creative producer, like because you're all kind of putting your creativity into this one pool, it does have to be tricky to kind of cover that that line sometimes. It absolutely is. And I think that comes down to relationships and, and building those relationships and building that trust, you know, and I think that's why certain you'll see a lot of filmmaking teams stick together from project to project because they've already developed that shorthand. They've solidified that collaborative um, relationship there's, they've built a lot of trust. You know, I think um, in order to make compelling material, I think you have to take some risks, you know, and you have to kind of push yourself into um, zones that might not be super comfortable or safe. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to surround yourself with people you trust to embark on that adventure, really, on that journey. And that's where the teamwork comes into play. And that's the, for me, that's one of the most rewarding aspects is I often say, like, I don't get, I'm not on a softball team, you know, playing being on a you know Tuesday night at six, I'll never make that. So my team sports experience, I get at work from the filmmaking team, from everybody from like the PA to wardrobe to hair and makeup to the grip department, the electric department. We're a big team and everybody has responsibility and a job description. And the project really comes down to how we melded and how we brought it together and help elevate each other and um, and that's fun. It's like, you know, somebody has one idea and then you go, oh yeah, and like this, and you can build on it. And it's, yeah. it turns into something way bigger than any one of us could come up on our own. Do you ever feel like the team on a, on a movie set or a big TV series set is too big? Like I often look at the list of credits under, under work and go, do they really need this amount of people to make the material? Yeah, and I, I think sometimes, you know, and, and I've been on really, really big projects and um, really, really small projects. I think it just depends on on the work at hand and what needs to, to be accomplished. And yeah, it can things can be too big where it's just hard to steer the ship. It's hard to stop it. You know, a lot of times it's like, oh, I want to get this camera angle, but we literally have 50 trucks parked that way. Mm. Um, as opposed to working, you know, sometimes on really, really small projects where there's only a few of us um, and you're way more nimble. Um, and you're also forced to come up with um, problem-solving solutions that might be a little more creative than just hiring somebody else to deal with it, another yeah. person, you know? Also, I think there's a, an aspect of people wanting to sort of, you know, cover their backs. And, and so they want to have their team, they want to have enough people to, to make sure that they accomplish their tasks. So it's a fine line. And again, it's budget, budgetarily driven. Yeah, no, 100%. Do you ever find yourself having to... I guess, give up your kind of dream vision of what a scene would look like due to those policies. Every day, <laughs> all day long. I know that might be your answer. <laughs> How do you get past that, you know? 
Well, you know, everything's compromised. This whole world is about compromise, right? Yeah. Um, and you learn to pick your battles and you hang on to things that you feel are important and you just have to kind of mentally break that down. Like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to let this part go, mm-hmm. but I'm willing to compromise on this part. And you fight for it. And, and ultimately, I win and I lose about 50% of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all have grand visions and, and expectations and stuff like that. So it's about tempering it down to what's logistically feasible, mm-hmm. what fits in that box um, based on the budget and the time. I think that's something different with like, you know, episodic stuff is, is you're really trying to make an hour long movie anywhere between like seven and 15 days mm-hmm. um, where, you know, a, a two hour movie is usually made in anywhere between like 80 and 150 days, depending like I've done two hour movies in 30 days. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just really about how much time and resources you have and prioritizing the things that are really important to you and being able to let go of some of the other things. I also think it's important to design um, and even maybe write a project based on what the budget is. Mm. So and then that's a lot of the part of the, we talk about pre-production is fine tuning the approach based on what our resources are and, and taking the written word and shaping it to, to fit in that box. What's the project you've worked on that's come the closest to being what you saw, saw it as? In terms of narrative, I don't know. It's a funny thing because I, I think once you start, once you have make a compromise or a decision to compromise on something, at least for me, I let go of that other dream. So it's hard to think back about the stuff that you didn't get or didn't do when you want to just rejoice and be happy on the stuff that you did do. Yeah. And, and sometimes, I mean, everything, hopefully you learn from every experience and you take it with you and for the next project. And so it's like, you know, this one project, I really wanted to use these lenses, but, but we couldn't really afford them or, or they didn't really work for, you know, this camera because they're too big. So I really want to try to use them on this project. And so I'm going to tailor that, um, those, that project or that um, equipment to a certain project that it works for, you know, and, and I won't forget it. It might be three to five years before I get to try that again, or I want to try it again, but you want to keep that in your memory. So when the opportunity presents itself, like, Oh yeah, it's a perfect time for me to use that one widget that I've been thinking about, or to do that one shot that I saw in a movie I want to rip off. You uh, take notes as you go through, like, do you have a little notebook or something that you keep these? I have several notebooks. In <laughs> Yeah, I have lots of notebooks. I write notes down all the time. I'm sort of that way generationally. I like to write things down. Mm-hmm. I do put them into notes on my phone or on the computer, but I have the hardest time finding them later. Like, what did I label that as? And that's something for me generationally that I'm always learning is how to manage my digital notebook. Mm. No, 100%. Do you manage to stay quite proud of your work or do you find yourself when you watch it back being quite critical? Or do you just go, ah, no, that was good, and move on? I think both. I'm hypercritical of, of um, things that are photography-specific. You know, I mean, realistically, nowadays, a lot of my responsibility is, is helping make the day, like, get all the shots. So there's always compromise in that. Um, it used to be when I was coming up and I worked for, for famous DPs, they would just walk off and smoke a cigarette. The light's not right. I'm not shooting to the light's right. Nowadays, like I, I, I have seven pages of dialogue to shoot. It doesn't matter what the light's like. I got to figure out how to shape the light or make shadows or fill in some mm-hmm. more light, and get the job done. So a lot of the feather in the cap is actually getting all the shots and getting everything accomplished in a, in a matter, in a timely manner, um, making the budget, making the schedule. And then I can nitpick the photography stuff mm-hmm. all day long. 
And I'm always trying to be better at that. And a lot of it's just how much time I have to work with it. You know, it's like, that's why I call sunset tragic hour. Cause we can spend, you know, I don't know, there's an old adage, how they say gone with the wind in the morning and Starsky and Hutch in the afternoon where like, you know, you take all your time and you set up these great shots and you light it in the morning and then come, you know, the afternoon, you're like, oh my gosh, we're running out of light. Just get the camera here, let's shoot, roll, roll. Yeah. Uh, so I call it tragic hour. Yeah. Um, so it's, you have to be cautious of that. And now we're starting to really track our days um, with the clock and try to, you know, move on regardless of whether or not we feel like we got it. It's like, okay, we can't compromise the ladder work in the day for this one shot this morning. So, mm-hmm. and a lot of times the producer will say, you guys got it, move on, like, let's go. And you're like, no, but there's this one thing, this one shadow, I want to redo it. Like, and you have to take into consideration the actors too. Like you don't want to make them do another take. Cause a lot of them are the actors that continually amaze me, like how much of themselves they expose and how deep they go to, to get these characters. And I'm always fascinated by the actors that, can be telling a joke right before a take and then sit down in front of the camera and cry and then okay cut and they go and then anyways the you know the donkey goes in the bar and you're like how do you shift gears like that like yeah. I, you know it's always fascinating and, and the really good actors do that all day long goodness do you do you have any advice that you would pass down to the next next big dp coming up um, I, I would say, you know, follow your heart, learn to pick your battles, shoot, 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 shoot. And that's the great thing about today's era is there's so many, it's so accessible, mm-hmm. you know, and you can practice your craft and then watch a lot of stuff mm-hmm. and figure out what you like and what you don't like. And I think it's okay to emulate other styles. And it's, it's you know, it's not a ripoff. It's an homage, really. And then I would say that Regardless of how artistic you are, ultimately you still have to manage your money and plan financially. And that's something that I thought I was escaping, um, trying to be in the arts. But ultimately, it, you have to be a business person too. Well, it's it's a creative career, isn't it? It's it's not just being creative. You do have to to know it as a as a career. Yeah, it's a job. Likely you don't have, uh, likely you have to make money. <laughs> Most people do. And so one who didn't. <laughs> right. I have, next life. <laughs> uh, I always tease my dad. Hey dad, where's my trust fund? He's like, he's like, just go to work. <laughs> like, I spent it. I had fun. <laughs> make, your own, make your own money, kid. So, you know, I think that's something that it didn't really sink in and to me until I was probably in my thirties, mm-hmm. you know, so it's something I tell kids all the time, you know, even just like structure your business a certain way, save, mm-hmm. you know, uh, think about taxes. My grandpa told me a long time ago, it's not how much you make, it's how much you keep. Mm-hmm. So think about the visual stuff and, and, and be inspired by it, but just know that you also have to, you know, plan financially for, for your life and for your business and for um, your work. Yeah. Very good advice. I mean, it only means that you can do it for longer. If you're careful, you know. Or not, because you could retire. Well, that is true. But <laughs> hey, people are doing this for the love of it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'm I'm constantly amazed by people in my role that um work well into their 70s. Mm. And I and I and I used to tease like, oh, they must have, you know, a vacation house and a boat and two ex-wives. But really that it's just so rewarding and it can be so inspiring. And I think that people have that have made a career out of it don't want to stop. Mm. 
James, yeah. thank you so, so much. You're an absolute superstar. Thank you so much. It was lovely speaking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Bad Mad podcast. Please subscribe to check out the next episode or leave a review if you liked it. You can find us on Instagram at goodbadmad or at goodbadmad.com for additional resources and information. See you next time.